1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder, murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Oh, yep, great. You can hear me. (laughs) Um, My name is Rob. I'm one of the elders here at City Light. And a warm welcome, particularly for anyone, um, as Flick has already said, that is joining us for the first time. However you've dropped into the live stream, um, we're really glad that you're here. We hope you have a great time with us today. And as always, I don't really have much of a chance to kind of do this, so thank you so much to the broader leadership of the church for the the weighty opportunity um, that it is to preach from this pulpit. And I'm looking forward to getting into God's Word with you this morning, so let me lead us in prayer together. Uh, Lord, you tell us in the Bible that your Word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Lord, please give us hearts that are soft, that are ready to hear your word to us this morning, that we'd be ready to listen and that your word might take root and bear fruit in our lives for our joy, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, if I asked you to define, you know, what is love, what would you say? What, what actually is love? And then how does that show itself in our society, in our culture, in our communities? What would you say? Leading up to today, I thought, well, I could spend some time looking at books and reading and, you know, what does music say? And I thought, no, I'm just going to save myself that time. I'll crowdsource it. So I put up on my Twitter and Instagram, I thought, what do you guys think? And I got some some responses back from people who would consider themselves Christians, non-Christians, even people that just don't even consider themselves religious. What is love? How does it manifest itself? In an effort to define love, some people came back to me and I got responses like this. Love is far more simple than we'd like to admit, yet we find it hard to define because we can find loving others so hard to do. Loving, love is other-focused, making the object of affection the focus. Love is a commitment and a devotion that is both an active choice and an overflow of affection. Now, trying to identify how is this expressed in our world, I receive these sorts of responses. I see love in places like hospital beds and cemeteries, places you wouldn't go apart from love. And then this one up on the screen here, it says... Someone said to me, in our culture by and large, it's expressed as chemistry, attraction, infatuation. It's generally 
self-seeking and convenience. Love is one of the most prevalent topics in our arts and tabloids. We love the idea of love, but not the commitment or the self-sacrificial choice required. Now, I thought that was an interesting one, and I think that's on the money, I think. Very generally speaking, across our culture, I think our culture considers love in many ways as a subjective experience. Love is an overwhelming feeling or a passion. The focus is very much on how I feel, and so I'm going to pursue it because of how you know, it makes me feel happy. The negative result of that means that as soon as those feelings disappear, we fall out of love. So does our sense of obligation to that person or to that group of people. And I'm sorry, Batch fans, but um, one of the people who responded to me pointed out shows like The Bachelor is you know, maybe an interesting case study looking at that whole that idea. Now, yes, of course, there are scenarios in our world that buck that trend. So every year, of course, as a country, we stop as a solemn reminder of those that gave their lives um, for our country and so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy um, here and take for granted. There's the parent that puts their body in between harm's way and their child. But generally, I think the approach of love that I was just talking about, I think that is quite a pervasive one in our society. And I think few places reveal our culture's approach to love more clearly than people's attitudes towards marriage. And I think this is not just something out there, this is something, I think, um, that we need to wrestle with within the church too. Marriage was once considered a lifetime commitment to another person, a promise to be there for one's spouse, to be for that person no matter what. And this was most concretely demonstrated, I think, in the exchanging of vows. But I think now, in many ways, those marriage vows that were once a promise of future love now more closely resemble a declaration of present love. Rather than a commitment, love is, is seen more as the feelings of love and warmth. And I think, of course, it doesn't always, it's not always the case. But some of the time when relationships fall apart, that's why you hear people make statements like, we just aren't in love anymore, or that spark is just gone. Now, picking up on this idea, um, pastor, theologian, speaker, Timothy Keller has this observation to say about love. He says, because our obsession is with feeling good rather than, he says, yeah, because our obsession is with feeling good rather than being good, our commitment to anything greater than ourselves is avoided. And our family, our friends, our churches, our communities, and our society are weakened as a result. And sadly, I don't think the church is immune from this. When I also asked people in my social networks, I said, if you visited a church, what did you notice about the people that go there? What struck you? I got someone that said, sadly, not always love. There are individual church cultures, norms, and behaviors in many. And I got some stories that came back of people that, that used the word invisible. They said that they came into a church and felt invisible. Now, of course, that's not always the case. Many people will come into church gatherings, right, and experience great love and community. When you hear the stories of people, you know, how, why did you choose to come to City Light? What, what kind of made you commit to City Light? A lot of the time, people talk about this concept of community. They enjoyed the community. When people go and look for churches, um, one of the things that is high on their list is community. But I think it's an ongoing challenge for us to think about. 
So where do we go from here? Well, I think, you know, how does God speak to this idea of love and particularly one another? We're going to look again at the letter of 1 John and see kind of big idea is that genuine love of fellow believers is the mark of those who belong to the truth. Yes, we as Christians are called to genuinely love all mankind. We're called to love the world. But the particular focus I think that John has in this specific section is addressing that love that we show for our brothers and sisters, one another within the church. If you're a note taker, um, our time today probably sits under three rough sections up on the screen. The message of love, the contrast to love, and the example of love. Let's kick off, but as a bit of background first. Um, so 1 John is a letter, it's not a book, it's a letter. And it's most likely written by the, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. And that's really important to know because in today's passage and throughout a lot of this book, a lot of this letter, when John says, says stuff, there are a lot of parallels to stuff that he says in the Gospel of John. And so when he says stuff, he's often assuming a pre-existing knowledge that they've read and they're familiar with another piece of writing that's already in circulation. This is a guy as well who's an eyewitness to Jesus himself. And he's writing because there's a significant concern that he has for the early church. And he's writing to really address some theological and behavioral concerns here. It's also, it's a book split into two halves. So the first half is very much focused on this idea of light. God is light. And then the second half pivots, and, and we saw it a bit with Cam last week. It pivots towards this idea of love, of God God being love. And so that's what we're going to look at. So firstly, the message of love. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 John 3 verse 11, John kicks off with this. He says, this, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So John, he jumps right out of the gate, right at the start, and he reminds his readers that when it comes to loving others, first keep in mind this message that you heard from the beginning. What's he getting at? Well, if you look, so John wrote a bunch of other books. So there's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. If you look at all of those, that from the beginning phrase comes up a lot. And it's, it's most usually used in relation to that command to love one another. So John is appealing to his readers to remember that simple, pure gospel that you were taught when you first came to faith, which would have included that command from Jesus himself to love one another. So he's appealing back to what would have been that earlier piece of writing, his gospel, which I think is a pretty baller move. I don't know how many people can quote themselves when they're making an argument. That's, that's a bold thing to do, um, but he does. And the, the part from his gospel that he most has in mind, I think, is the story of the Last Supper. This is right at the end of Jesus' life, just before he's going to be led away, arrested and crucified. He has a last meal with his disciples and he shares a meal with them and gives some imparting words. And during that night, he says this. He says three times. He says in John 13, 34, he says, Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Later that night, he says in John 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, John 15, 17 these things I command you so that you will love one another. So what, what is John saying here? So he's done a lot of hard work before today's passage 
to really call these, these believers, call the church, to look at their own lives. Are they living an upright life, saying no to sin? He's emphasizing the importance of fruit in the life of believers. So he's done all of that hard work in, in the earlier parts of this letter. That's happened. And then now he's saying, mate, just go back to the beginning. Go back to what you heard from the beginning. Start there. Now, I'm sure many of us have probably had experiences with kids in some form or another. Some of you might have young children. Some of you may have taken care of kids. I know we've got a lot of teachers and primary, care, um, primary school teachers. And particularly if you have had experience with really young kids, quite often you have to give them instructions and remind them like 50 times before they actually do that. And, and quite often they need that reminder because they can get distracted easily. They can go off and... They'll, they'll get involved in something that's totally unrelated to what you've, you've asked them to do. Well, now John, kind of similarly, is saying, go back to what you heard. Go back to what you heard from the beginning. Remember that pure gospel and that command to love one another. But notice here, though, and we're going to get back to it, that Jesus' command to love one another is connected to another act of love, and that is the love that Jesus has shown his disciples and will show them. But park that thought for a minute because we're going to come back to that. And, and John now is going to kind of spell out negatively and positively what he means by loving one another. So the second section, the contrast to love. If you turn in your Bibles, 1 John 3 verses 12 to 13, John is going to appeal to an ancient story from the Old Testament that these readers would have been very familiar with. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So what is this about? Well, if you were to turn to your Bibles back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, there's this story that's told of Adam and Eve, the first people, and they give birth to twins. One is Cain, one is Abel. Abel, it says, was a keeper of sheep, so he kept flocks of animals. And Cain was a worker of the ground. He worked the land. He was a farmer. They grew up. Um, that was their jobs. The time came for them to bring an offering to the Lord. Cain brought an offering of fruits from the ground, and Abel brought an offering of his firstborn of the flock. And so God looks at these, and he looks on Abel's offering with favor, and but not Cain's. And so Cain becomes angry and jealous of his brother and kills him. So John brings up this story and he says, don't be like Cain. Like, don't be that guy. What's he, what's, what does he mean by that? It is, it's a deep story. There's a lot. There's a whole sermon in itself to kind of unpack that story. But if we kind of step up, look at the forest through the, tree, the trees, basically John is saying that Cain become became jealous of his brother's righteousness before God, his, upstand, his uprightness before God. And that is why he killed his brother Abel. His jealousy led to hatred, which led to murder. And he's ultimately saying, don't be like Cain who hated his brother, because hate is something that seeks other people's harm. It seeks to hurt or tear down or to destroy John's, or maybe even more subtly than that, maybe it means making others feel inferior or just plain indifference to other people. 
John's saying, don't be like this. He's saying, you are the children of God. This is not a marker of the children of God. This is not how you treat fellow children of God. But he does also warn in verse 13 that we aren't to be surprised if that, though, is the reaction that we get from a world that does not recognize Jesus as king on the throne. There may be times when others don't like us because of legitimately bad things that we've said and done. But other times we may suffer not because we've done the wrong thing, but maybe because we've done the right thing. And that might have all sorts of implications within our families, our workplaces, our friendship circles. How do we feel about that? Well, in verses 14 and 15, John then rounds out his point that those who show an ongoing failure to love or that continue to hate others, is a mark of those who remain in death and do not have eternal life. It's a jarring challenge. Jesus himself drops that exact same challenge in his Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. See, as I've said, anger or hatred generally involves a desire to damage or to destroy another person, either maybe in some personal way or to the literal extreme of murder. But maybe even calling someone a fool, maybe that is closely related to anger in that it represents potentially an attack on someone's identity or their character. And he goes on in 14 to say that love is the surest test of having life. Love for fellow believers is a mark of those who have escaped condemnation because they've come to know God through Christ. Now, I'm sure many of you, you might have visited somewhere that uh, might be different to what you're used to, and you'll notice little signs or markers that indicate, this is a different place, this isn't really what I'm used to. might be going to someone's place, it might be visiting another part of Sydney, might potentially to the obvious extreme, maybe it's going and seeing a foreign country. I remember a number of years ago, our family took a trip over to Japan, which is probably a really extreme example, but in many ways, it's very different to to Australia. And you didn't even have to leave the hotel to notice those little things that were different about that place. When you'd go downstairs, you you, you took the lift down to the lobby, the doors would open up, and there'd be a staff worker there, like like smiling, and and he'd bow really deeply, which was, yeah, you would not get that here. we, you know, you'd go and have breakfast and fish and rice were on the menu. That's very different. We generally wouldn't do that for breakfast here. And I remember you, d- you didn't even have to leave the room. I remember that like the first night that we got to Tokyo, we went into the, the, the room that we were staying and went into the bathroom and there were all these buttons on the, the toilet and we had no idea what they were. And Chris came in and he, and he pressed one of the buttons and this little long plastic arm came out of the toilet and turned upside down and sprayed water all over the bathroom (laughs) and we had to bolt out, shut the door until it finished. (laughs) Um, But the Bible says, so they're kind of, you know, thinking about markers, the Bible says that love should be one of the primary markers of Jesus' followers of the church and that should be the experience of the church, the experience of those who spend time amongst us. But I don't think, sadly, that's always the case. C.S. Lewis is going to help us kind of press into this a little bit more in a minute, but um, let's press on the example of love. John then turns to what I think is the climax of his teaching on love, which should be seen in the life of the church. 
He's going to tell us something, I think, about the essence of love itself. And it's actually going to relate to that message that we heard from the beginning that we looked at just before. He says, 1 John 3, verse 16 to 18, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So John says that we have the ultimate example of what love is. That Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for us. The gospel reminds us that we wanted to have nothing to do with God and wanted to live our own way, to call the shots, to sit on the thrones of our own lives. And so the gospel says that we were separated, cut off, from the very source of life itself, facing his wrath. But the gospel is also a story of love because it reminds us of God's great love for us. He didn't just leave us in our sin. He sent his son. His son got off his throne, came into our world in the humblest of circumstances, was willing not to be served but to serve And to literally stand there and have nails driven through his hands and feet. To die a shameful, shameful, gruesome death. So that the penalty for our sin could be paid for. So that we could be forgiven. Because of God's great love, free to us, but at the cost of his son, we could receive forgiveness. Relationship. The hope of eternal life. If we reflect on our own lives for a minute, what is the most precious thing that we have? It's our very lives. Yet Jesus himself gave up his very own life for us in our place. And it says that Jesus gave up his life not just for people, but for his enemies. Those that were hard to love, those that didn't love him back. Those that didn't want anything to do with him. I want to go back just to the story of Cain and Abel for a minute. You see, when when Cain kills his brother Abel, God then speaks. And this is what God's response is to that. He says in Genesis 4, 10 to 11, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The blood of Abel cries out condemnation against Cain for what he's done. The blood is on Cain's hands and God punishes him. But the gospel shows us that Jesus is that better, that true Abel, whose blood doesn't cry out condemnation against us, but for our acquittal. That penalty for our sin has been cleared from being counted against each of us. John says in 1 John 3 verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The NIV translates that word given as lavished. God lavished his love on us. And John is saying here, start from this place. In today's passage, he's saying, you are loved. You are God's child. That is who you are. So now be who you are. Love one another because you have been and you are loved. 
Are you struck by the gravity of Jesus' death on your behalf? The scandal, the sheer scandal that God would enter into his own creation and give up his own life. Or has the gospel grown stale in our hearts? But as I've said, John doesn't leave it there because he's going to say that the love of God isn't just some great example to be admired. It's an example to be imitated as well. And in verse 16, he says, we are to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, I don't know about you, probably not many of us are going to be faced with a situation where we literally need to lay down our very lives for someone else. So where does that leave us? Well, John provides a more everyday example, I think, in verse 17. He doesn't let us get out of it very easily. And he calls people, he calls Christians to not close their hearts towards fellow believers in need. It might be to wash the dishes for a roommate, to listen to the, on the phone to someone who's lonely, to hang in there with someone who's pouring out their heart, to help build connections, to hand out groceries to the vulnerable in our community through hands and feet. And he then finishes by calling readers not to just love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, to love truly means that we shouldn't just talk about love, we should practice it. Now that could be a real challenge, can't it, sometimes? And C.S. Lewis has a pretty pointy observation here. He says this, he says, It's easy to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperated, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everyone in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Wow, that is, that's quite a pointy observation. But I think it's true. Churches, relationships, people can be messy. And sometimes if we just stop and we're really honest with ourselves, man, there are just some people that I just find it, it is really hard to love. Loving that person might cause me pain or discomfort. It might be inconvenience. It might even reduce my own pleasure. And when you're faced with those sorts of obstacles, it can be so easy to avoid loving other people. Why? Well, maybe taking some of those reflections right back at the start of our time, and if I look at even just my own motives, I, I say this for myself too, I think sometimes it's because so much of what passes as love in our world is done because it, it's, it makes me feel better about myself. And it's convenient at, at the time. It doesn't always stem from somebody else's well-being. Or maybe it's because we just need to work that little bit harder at recognizing the needs of other people. Actually asking questions to find out what's actually going on in this person's life. What can I do to encourage her? What can I do to spur him on to love God more deeply? So where do we go from here? If you, if you are in this room, if you're on the live stream, you call yourself a Christian. First, remember that you are a dearly loved child of God and live out of that. How are we going at loving those in our church community? Not just with some superficial love or when it's convenient. Not just motivated because it makes me feel good. But with a love that is self-sacrificial. 
as an overflow from that great love that God has shown us. In 2021, how will you resolve to love those at Sunday gatherings in missional communities throughout the week? How will you do that in those moments where there are people that are just really hard to love or when it's inconvenient for yourself? Will you resolve to, even as the writer of Hebrews urges us, to never give up meeting together? Just one of the easiest ways to show love to someone is simply to turn up, to show up. The other really practical challenge that I have for all of us here in this room is think of who are three people that you just find it hard to love? Is there anyone here, this is a pointy question, is there anyone here that you hate? Or even that you're just plain indifferent to? Do you need to take some time out to ask God to begin thawing your heart towards someone else? And what might be the steps that you can take to love those people better? Now, if you're in the room, if you're watching, you, you're like, great, that's all good for you, you Christians. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, or if you consider yourself irreligious, non-religious, have you actually taken the time to fully investigate that good news message that John talks about? Because the Bible tells us that we all worship someone or something. And to this point, if you've made that call in your life that, you know, I'm, I'm the judge, I call my own shots, are you willing to bet your life on that? At times throughout the year, we run a course called Introducing Jesus that helps step people through the core message of Christianity and asks you to, um, you know, you can ask questions. Maybe that's that next step for you, to seriously investigate the claims of Christianity, maybe for the first time. If that's something you're interested in, there's a little while off. I think it's around Easter is the first one, so it is a little while off. But if that is something that you are interested in, please let us know. Drop a comment in on the Facebook Live thread. Come and chat to any of the people that you've seen up the front here. And that's because that the amazing news of Christianity is not do, God, do good so that God will love you or clean yourself up so that you're the type of person that God can love. No. The gospel says that God so loved us first that he didn't even withhold his only son. Jesus came into the world and gave up his own life so that we could be called the children of God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the most glorious and perfect example of love that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Help us to know the joy and the power of that love in our hearts, that it would lead to a real enduring love of others, that we would live and love out of who we are as your children. Help us to resolve to love others in 2021, in this church, in our community groups throughout the year, those that might be different from us, or that we think are hard to love. And please continue to work these truths in our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.